Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I have worked manual labor jobs for my entire life. I have worked as a pastor, and I am taking my first steps into the exciting world of academics. In this podcast, we will dive into history, theology, current events, and perhaps even other topics along the way. In this series, we will explore the American Civil War, the foundational event in the United States' rise from a brand new nation to full-fledged world power. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. Music by Coma Media from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. Thank you for joining us. Well, hello, friends and family. Welcome back to the Blue Collar Scholar podcast. I'm glad to have you guys with us today. We're continuing along with our series on the American Civil War. Um, I'm glad you're joining us, and I hope you're enjoying this. I have noticed a trend. These classes, when I give them, take about an hour and a half, maybe a little less. Uh, These podcasts are much less, and I think the reason is because there's not as much interaction. And that's one of the reasons why I enjoy the class more. I still hope you're enjoying the podcast. But we're missing out on a lot of the questions, a lot of the interaction that we would get with the class. But nevertheless, I'm also enjoying the podcasting experience, and I'm already starting to uh, expand my mind as far as what other I ideas I might have. I'm kind of thinking about maybe starting a new podcast about literally everything, where I might talk about politics, losing weight, Kansas City Chiefs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But right now, we're not talking about any of that. We're talking about the American Civil War. Now, the way I've set up this class, we actually will spend just a few lectures talking about the war itself. We spend a good more than a third of the class talking about the lead up to the war. And then we spend the last four lectures talk about the aftermath after the war. By my count, only six lectures will actually be about the war itself. Today, we're going to talk about antebellum America. What was America like before the Civil War? Because if the Civil War was nothing else, it was a major change in American society. One anecdote is that prior to the Civil War, it was most common for people to refer to the United States as a plural noun. So they would say, the United States are this or that. The United States are great. After the Civil War, you started to, even in the South, you started to develop this idea that the United States is a singular noun. The United States is great. And of course, those who haven't, you know, we're used to using the United States as a singular noun, but if you're not used to that, it sounds wrong. United States is, states is, it goes from a plural to a singular verb. It doesn't really work in English, but we're just used to it because we think of the United States as one nation. Before the Civil War, it was not that way. So that's just one anecdote about how the culture of the United States was different prior to uh, the civil, the American Civil War. So we're going to talk about several topics today. Uh, I'm going to come back to slavery. That's how we'll and we'll, we'll do a, a more extensive look at slavery. But we've got to start with slavery because a lot of the other topics 
will be directly related. Uh, aside from slavery, the antebellum America was a, an area was an, a time of low taxes. It was not uncommon for an American citizen to go their entire lives without paying hardly any taxes, especially income taxes. Most of the revenue that was made was through things like tariffs. But even that, the tariffs were pretty low. It was a time of low tariffs, especially after the Compromise Tariff of 1833 that South Carolina forced by threatening to nullify all tariffs in South Carolina waters, in, in South Carolina territory. A big driving force of the antebellum America was the concept of manifest destiny. The idea that we are part of a massive continent and it is our destiny, it is our manifest destiny, that eventually we would cover the whole continent. Didn't quite work out that way. Canada actually is a little bigger than the United States. Uh, we didn't conquer any of that. Uh, and then Mexico and, and everything south of Mexico is yet another area of our continent that together, Mexico plus Central America, is about as big as the United States. And so we're really only a third of our continent. But what we do, what we do do, as well as Mexico and Canada achieve the same thing, is we have strong presence on two massive oceans. The United States has an East Coast and a West Coast, and it's the same country. That was definitely part of Manifest Destiny. The idea of, of connecting New York, Boston, Washington, Philadelphia with California and Oregon and everything in between, uh, which is where I live right now, right here in the middle of flyover country, was all part of Manifest Destiny. Unfortunately, Another big aspect of the Antebellum America was our treatment of Native Americans, of the indigenous population of North America. There were already uh, wars with the tribes. Now, some of these wars would, would really intensify after the Civil War. Uh, George Custer famously died, uh, and all of his uh, soldiers died in a battle at Little Bighorn against Native Americans. But even before the Civil War, there was uh, the Seminole War, which Andrew Jackson fought in, uh, between the United States forces and the Seminole Nation of uh, Florida and Georgia. The Not only were there wars, but there was also the Trail of Tears. It was decided that, that these Native American tribes should be forced out now, interestingly enough, the Supreme Court actually ordered that the tribes should not be forced out, but Andrew Jackson famously said the Supreme Court has made their decision, now let them enforce it. And Andrew Jackson, in his most shameful moment, forced the five civilized tribes west. The five civilized tribes were uh, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Creek, also known as the Muscogee, and the Seminoles. And each one of these groups found themselves removed in turn. First the uh, Choctaw in 1831, then the Seminole in 1832, the Creek or the Muscogee in 1834, the Chickasaw in 1837, and then finally the largest and most civilized, and that's such a 
uh, a patronizing way of putting it, but that's the term that was used at the time, describing them as civilized tribes. The Cherokee were the tribe that had most assimilated white American culture. They had developed a written language. They had developed a constitution. They had a treaty which allowed the Cherokee tribes to seat a man in Congress, which is a treaty that the Cherokee are even to this day trying to enforce, trying to get a member of the Cherokee tribe representing the Cherokee tribe in the House of Representatives. The Cherokee were forced out in 1838. Not all members of these tribes were forced out. There are still members of all of these tribes, especially the Seminole, because they fought back. Uh, you still f see me uh, members of these tribes, remnants of these tribes, in Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and the Carolinas. Uh, but a, a large portion of these groups are now here in Oklahoma, Kansas, in, in this area of the world. In fact, uh, in Kansas, there's a Cherokee County. I once lived there. Um, it, the Cherokee Nation is a big part of Oklahoma culture now, even though they're originally from the American Southeast. A big development economically was the Erie Canal. The Erie Canal connected the uh, cities of New York along the Hudson River with uh, the cities of uh, at that time that were considered the West, so Buffalo, New York, as well as Erie, Cleveland, and ev uh, eventually Detroit, Chicago, Green Bay, those uh, uh, the other areas, pretty much everywhere that the Great Lakes would reach to. Now, it was possible to transport things using the St. Lawrence Seaway. But the St. Lawrence Seaway, you'd run into problems with waterfalls and also the big problem that the entire St. Lawrence Seaway laid in British territory. And so the Erie Canal opened up upstate New York to massive economic development as well as greater population and larger cities as cities along the Hudson River and then along the Erie Canal and then uh, on the coasts of the Great Lakes uh, developed and grew massively because of the development of the Erie Canal. Uh, another great development was the Second Great Awakening. And now, as a theologian myself, I should probably know a lot more about the Second Great Awakening uh, than I do. Uh, the First Great Awakening was uh, during the colonial period. The Second Great Awakening was uh, during the early Republic period and the if I were to venture a guess, I'd say between the 18-teens and the 1840s. Um, the Second Great Awakening had a slightly different feel to it. It was a little bit more rural. Uh, the Second Great Awakening saw gr the growth of uh, camp meetings in Kentucky, Tennessee, later Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, the western territories and states of the United States at the time. Uh, it saw... Uh, growth of churches that perhaps didn't didn't have or didn't have access to or could not afford educated clergy. You saw a greater emphasis on personal relation a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, which naturally led to personal or development of personal theology, personal doctrines and opinions. Uh, abolitionism, the women's rights movement, would grow out of the Second Great Awakening. Not exclusively so. I don't want to make it sound like. 
there were no secular thinkers in the abolition movement, and there certainly were secular thinkers in the women's early women's rights movement. But both movements were greatly strengthened by the Second Great Awakening. This time, and I kind of already mentioned this with Texas and Terrace, but this was a time of small government. The government that we're all used to today is a lot closer to a welfare state. And I don't say that derogatorily. I'm, I'm In this podcast, I'm neither defending, advocating, nor demeaning the concept of welfare state. There are nations in Europe that make welfare states look very attractive, affordable, and prosperous. And then there are other welfare states that uh, don't pull it off so well. But if you could go back to the 1830s and explain to American citizens then just all of what the U.S. government does, and for that matter, all the individual state governments do, what their the, the expectations are, the responsibilities, issues of welfare, unemployment, uh, feeding children, public education, almost none of this was part of the scene in the antebe- in antebellum America. It was a very small government time. Things began to change with the gold rush, not in terms of small government, but I'm kind of that was an awkward segue. Uh, the United States was a mostly Eastern country. And then with the explorations of people like John C. Fremont, who I, ju- I just ended up reading a, uh, a book about John C. Fremont and his wife called Imperfect Union. I highly recommend it. It's by the author Steve Inskeep. Uh, so I, I've, I've got John C. Fremont on the mind, but he wasn't the only explorer of the West. Obviously, famously, you had uh, Lewis and Clark, but uh, you had other explorers really going out there and really trying to figure out just what all this territory that the United States acquired in the Louisiana Purchase and the Mexican-American War, just what was out here. Um, well, part of, of all of that exploration was that there was discovered gold in California in 1848. It might have been 1847. But by 1849, and hence we got the name for the 49ers, by 1849 there was a rush of people trying to come to California. The population of California exploded so quickly that California was able to basically skip the territory phase and move straight into becoming a U.S. state, thus establishing what at that point was really uh, a an East Coast country with what they would consider, what you, if you would talk to an American at the time, what they would talk about the West, they would be talking about Kentucky, not Wyoming or Montana or California. Uh, it turned what was basically an East Coast country into a truly transcontinental nation. And then later, before the Civil War, or was it before Abraham Lincoln's second inauguration? It was sometime around 1860, 1864, somewhere in that uh, area. Uh, Oregon also joined the the group of uh, United States states that touch the Pacific Ocean. The antebellum America was also a time of great industrialization. The Industrial Revolution really kicked off in in England and uh, spread throughout Europe. It was kind of slower to catch on in America, but once it did catch on, it skyrocketed until eventually America became the industrial superpower on Earth. And in many ways, we still are. Uh, Our economy has shifted and evolved naturally over time. we're more, it's more of an information-based economy, more of a service-based economy, but we're still a massive manufacturing powerhouse uh, in the world. 
So let's come now that we've covered those. Let's let's talk about our two bigger biggest topics today: immigration and and I'll close with slavery. Now, immigration is important for my story. I don't want to share too much because my wife doesn't like when I talk about her very much. But I love my wife; she's great. Because I married a, a citizen of the Philippines who is now a citizen of the United States, I know a lot about how legal immigration works in this country today. I know the good things about it, and I know the frustrating things about it. Um, immigration has not always been uh, the way it is today, a, a highly bureaucratic system with um, lots of expenses involved, lots of waiting periods and times. In fact, immigration really wasn't always as steady as we tend to think of it today. We tend to think of immigration as something that's pretty much always happening. But immigration in North America came in fits and starts. It began in Jamestown in 1607. Uh, early immigrants to North America were almost all English, but they were from the impoverished impoverished regions of England. So for instance, there were a lot of East Anglians, people from the areas around Suffolk and Essex. Uh, also, you, people from the around the towns of Sussex and Kent. You would see a lot of, of immigrants from those areas because those were the poorer areas of England. The r more wealthy areas, the areas of greater prosperity, you saw relatively little immigration from those areas. Now, these other areas aren't actually England, but they are part of the British Isles. So you also saw a lot of immigration from Scotland, uh, from Ulster, which we now call Northern Ireland, and from Wales, the, for lack of a better description, the west coast of England. In New York, you had a lot of early Dutch immigration because New York started as New Amsterdam, uh, the Netherlands' attempt at uh, establishing a colony in the area. It was changed to New York because it was conquered finally by the Duke of York. Uh, you also saw quite a bit of immigration from Germans, from Irish, from Swedes, and from Finns who moved into the middle colonies. Now, the, these trends of immigration from these other areas of kind of northern and western Europe were not so much pre-1830. These really picked up after 1830 and then throughout the 1800s from that point on. Well, I guess we also have to, I, I didn't include in my notes, we should also talk about French. The French immigration in North America was actually quite extensive, not as extensive as as England. France always tried to establish more uh, functional uh, establishments to try to establish kind of a hegemony over areas to, to develop economic bounty out of North America. But there were French societies that developed in, for instance, Quebec, which is still a French-speaking area of Canada. Uh, culturally, probably the most unique part of Canada. There's has been strong Quebec separatist uh, movements throughout history, and there are still, I'm not sure how strong it is today, but there still is uh, a, uh, individuals within Quebec that would like to see Quebec become its own French-speaking North American nation. Uh, but also, 
there were French immigrants in the region called Acadia. The English, or the, the British basically forced them out. Uh, I'm not an expert on this. It might have been a little bit more pu push and pull factors. The Acadians might have left because they didn't necessarily want to be ruled by the British. So whether they were forced out or whether they chose their own exile, they swung around the continent and ended up in New Orleans and the, and the air regions around New Orleans. And that's where we get the term Cajun. It's a slur of the term Acadian. But the French were also uh, in smaller groups throughout uh, North America. They would uh, there's areas like Detroit, Fort Wayne, Chicago, uh, were all areas that were French forts at one time or another. Um, there still are quite a bit of French people in the northern areas of New Hampshire and Vermont. That probably has more to do with the uh, with Quebec being so nearby, but uh, French immigration in the United States. Also, we got while we're talking about it, throw it out there: uh, the French. Um, established themselves on the island of Hispaniola in what is now called Haiti. France still has a colony in on South America called French Guiana. Now, its political existence is, is it's kind of, it's weird. As best I can tell, France basically considers French Guiana to be French territory. It's not really considered a colony. It's considered a state within the French government, which means that the country that France has the longest land border with is not Spain and it's not Germany. It's actually Brazil because of French Guiana. Now, as the United States, let's get back to the United States, as the United States began to expand ever westward across the Appalachians and into uh, the Great Plains and then further uh, west into the uh, Mount. Rocky Mountains, the Great Basin region, as the United States began to expand westward, you started to see more and more diverse groups of Europeans. Um, the groups such as the Jewish immigrants, Irish and Italians, actually they tended to congregate in U.S. cities. So Boston, for instance, would get a large uh, Irish population. A lot of Italians would move into New York, as well as Jewish populations in New York. And actually, there was a quite a bit of Jewish immigration into Charleston, South Carolina. The first uh, synagogue in North America was in Charleston, South Carolina. Eastern Europeans tended to congregate in mining areas. So you'd see a lot of Czechs and Bohemians, and actually Czechs and Bohemians, I think, are the same thing. Uh, uh, Germans... Uh, Slovenian, Slovaks, uh, other groups, uh, uh, Balkan and, uh, and Baltic uh, immigrants would, would end up in mining areas such as Pennsylvania, Ohio. Uh, you would see a lot of Northern European immigration. We kind of already discussed this with the Swedes and the Finns, uh, but also Norwegians into kind of Northern areas of, of our country like Minnesota and Iowa. Over time, Immigration uh, in the United States began to diversify. With the gold rush, you began to see immigration into California from all over Europe, as well as Australia, from Latin America, 
John C. Fremont, for instance, owned a, a, a large portion of land and he actually used experienced Mexican miners from Sonora. And they, they would work his land and split the profits with him. You would also have Chinese immigration, which led to some of the some of the earliest strong backlash against immigrants where it was against Chinese uh, immigrants in the West, as well as a great amount of internal immigration. The first two senators from California, uh, John C. Fremont and I forget the name of the other fellow, but they were both from the South. Fremont was from South Carolina, though by this point in his life was much more of a Westerner. He had spent most of his life exploring. Uh, but the other fellow, I can't believe I can't remember his name. He was from Mississippi and, and favored um, expanding slavery into California. But just the fact that you, your first two senators from California really weren't Californian just says a lot about internal immigration uh, into that area, into the West Coast of the United States. Over time, as immigration diversified, you started to see strong nativism and anti-Catholicism strains in American culture. This is also partly because of the Second Great Awakening. The, the Second Great Awakening mostly benefited Presbyterians, Methodists, and Baptists. It was a very frontier-focused religious movement. And the Second Great Awakening also tended to spawn fringe groups, I do not want to insult anybody. I hope I'm not insulting anybody by calling these groups fringe, but they were their theology started to develop quite differently from mainstream uh, Anglicans, Presbyterians, as well as uh, slightly fringe groups like Methodists and Baptists. So you started to see groups of uh, the growth of groups like the Adventists, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Uh, Alexander Campbell's movement, uh, later known as the Church of Christ. As I mentioned earlier, the Second Great Awakening saw the increase of abolitionism and women's rights movements, uh, leading many of the leaders of the Seneca Falls women's rights movement in 1848 uh, found their voice in the Second Great Awakening. But the dark side of the Second Great Awakening was that it, uh, it kind of sparked nativist and anti-Catholic feelings. A group started to develop during this time called the Know Nothing Party. The reason they were called that is because when new members, actually all members, but new members sometimes really wouldn't know anything. When members would, would be asked what they knew about the American Party, I think it originally had a name, some grandiose name like the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner or something. When, uh, But later it would be known as the American Party. When People were asked about the group, who was its membership, how were they getting their money, when were they meeting, et cetera, et cetera. Members of the group would say, I know nothing. And that's how they got the name, the Know Nothing Party. Uh, the Know Nothing Party really grew up and, and influenced how the Republican Party would develop. Because as the, as the, and we'll talk more about this with political developments in a later podcast, as the political parties uh, the two-party system at the time, the Democrats and the Whigs, as it started to develop, as the Democrats became more and more of a Southern party, Northern Democrats and those Democrats who did not favor slavery began to feel disenfranchised or disenchanted with their party. 
the Whig Party just simply started to fall apart. It, it began to lose its power. And so out of the ashes of Northern Democrats, the Whig Party uh, and abolitionism started to grow what would become the Republican Party. But those elements alone were not strong enough. The nativists from the Know Nothing Party and other natives that maybe were not associated with the Know Nothings had to come along to strengthen and bolster the Republican Party as it grew in the late 1850s. So we will discuss that more as we talk about um, political developments before the uh, American Civil War. Let's close today's lecture by talking about slavery. Here is a rough timeline of slavery in antebellum America. Famously, in 1619, the first transatlantic slave ships arrived in Virginia. The Spanish and the Portuguese had actually been using slaves since around 1500 for several generations before, but for whatever reason, the British had not joined the game until 1619. In 1537, Pope Paul III forbid the slavery of indigenous Americans, which was, was a good decision. Uh, first of all, slavery of indigenous Americans would go on anyway, but with Spain and Portugal being the driving factors in the first couple of generations of slavery in, in the West, in the Western Hemisphere, and Spain and Portugal both being loyal Catholic nations, they had to find solutions to get around Pope, Pope, Paul's, uh, Pope Paul III's decision, and their, their way around it was to import ships and ships full of black Africans. In 1652, Roger Williams in Rhode Island tried to abolish slavery. To his credit, he, this makes him one of the earliest Americans to, to fight against slavery, or at least one of the earliest white Americans to fight against slavery. Unfortunately, he was unsuccessful. In 1688, Quakers in Germantown, Pennsylvania, produ produced a petition to end African slavery altogether. Once again, unsuccessful. But you, you begin to see the stirrings in the north of uh, feeling cultural feeling against slavery. Now, this was interesting to me when I was doing my research, I did not realize this was true at all, but between 18, excuse me, between 1732 and 1749, Georgia, of all places, Georgia outlaws African slavery, but they allow the enslavery of indigenous peoples. In 1738, at Fort Mose, and I might be mispronouncing it, it might be Mose, spelled M-O-S-E with the little tilde above the E. At Fort Mose, Florida, there was the establishment of a, a legal settlement of free blacks in Florida. In 1775, the British offer Virginia slaves freedom for any of them who would fight for Britain. Also in 1775 was the foundation of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. Benjamin Franklin be, uh, actually had been a slave owner, a small slave owner. But by the time he dies in 1790, I believe, he actually is pretty much the only founding father who is vocally in favor of abolition. I believe Benjamin Franklin was part of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. 
1775, the Atlantic slave trade was suspended during the war. A few years later, 1777, Vermont becomes the first state to actually ban slavery. But to be fair, the enforcement of the ban was sporadic. 1779, the British up their offer to slaves. Now the offer is not that you, you'll be free if you fight for us. Now the offer is we will grant you freedom if you abandon the rebels. You don't even have to fight for us. Just don't serve the patriots, what we as Americans would call the patriots. From starting in 1780, Pennsylvania gets in on the abolition game. Although Pennsylvania inaugurates a gradual abolition, so they're actually one of the last northern states with slavery as well, because gradual abolition in Pennsylvania goes from 1780 all the way to 1847. In 1783, Massachusetts becomes the first state to put the nail in the coffin of slavery when slavery is ruled unconstitutional in 1783 in Massachusetts. The same year New Hampshire joins the game, they began a process of gradual abolition. 1784, Connecticut frees all the children of slaves and then later goes ahead and frees all slaves. Also in 1784, Roger Williams gets his wish as Rhode Island banned slavery, but only as a process of gradual abolition of slavery. Now the big, the biggie on slavery, because each, each of the states that was a colony, a British colony, pretty much had their own culture, their own political set up. Uh, it, was kind of, it was hard. Those states each had to kind of make their own decision uh, to, to, to go against slavery, and a handful already had. But in 18, excuse me, in 1787, the Northwest Ordinance is passed. This is before the Constitution, so this is passed by the Articles of Confederation, which basically makes this the most significant law passed by the Articles of the Confederation uh, United States government. The Northwest Ordinance established uh, the uh, territories, which eventually became the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, and areas which would later become eastern Minnesota. But the Northwest Ordinance also established that slavery would not be part of these lands. It would, there, slavery would find its way in some of these lands for limited times, but the or Northwest Ordinance officially banned slavery in these areas. 1794, the Slave Trade Act prevents exportation from the United States and prevents American ships from importing slaves. So the Slave Trade Act, actually I think it's two, two different acts, the Slave Trade Acts. First of all, they prevent American slaves, slaves in the United States, from being sent overseas. Now this sounds like a toothless act, but it actually helps. It prevents American-born slaves from going to Haiti, where the death rate of slaves was pretty much every slave that goes to, to, to work in the uh, sugar fields of Haiti would die, and most of them within just a few years of beginning their labor. It was a brutal, brutal life to be a sugar slave in Saint-Domingue. So the Slave Trade Act prevents the exportation of slaves from the United States, but it also prevents 
American ships from engaging in the slave trade. This is actually unconstitutional because the Constitution established that the federal government could not actually make any laws preventing the importation of slaves, and that even the discussion of it couldn't begin until 1808. So this law was actually unconstitutional, but from my reading, I don't think it was ever ruled as such. I think it went into effect. In 1799, uh, from 1799 to 1827, New York began its gradual emancipation. And at this point, most of the North has abolished slavery or is well on their way to, to doing so. In 1800, the Second Slave Trade Act bans American investment in or employment in the slave trade. So it's, once again, technically unconstitutional. It's a good law, but it's unconstitutional, but it doesn't get overturned. So the first set of slave trade acts prevents American-born slaves from being exported from the United States. It also prevented American-owned ships from engaging in the slave trade. Now, Americans cannot invest in a foreign slave trade operation. So a Spanish or British or French owned uh, company that imports slaves, Americans can no longer invest in that. And American sailors cannot be employed by those companies. In 1802, Ohio, which was part of the Northwest Ordinance, so it really didn't have to do this. But in 1802, Ohio officially abolishes slavery, followed in 1804 by New Jersey. In 1806, Thomas Jefferson, of all people, calls for the abolition of the slave trade as soon as possible. Thomas Jefferson knows the Constitution. He knows that, that you can't even discuss, you can't bring it to the floor of Congress to even talk about ending the slave trade until 1808. But he nevertheless calls for the abolition of slave trade a few years early. He's trying to get the ball rolling. Now, this sounds hypocritical of Thomas Jefferson, and it is. Let's analyze why. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner himself. And I, I'm going to take Thomas Jefferson at his word that he did believe that slave, slavery was a necessary evil, which puts him at odds with later Southern politicians like John C. Calhoun, which argued that slavery was a positive good for the enslaved population, which is patently ridiculous. Thomas Jefferson at least had the, the presence of mind to know that slavery is not good for slaves. It's just not. Uh, but he, Jefferson, pretty much what he wanted, he wanted slavery to die a natural death shortly after his natural death so that he can continue benefiting from slavery. Uh, and then once he's gone, then hopefully slavery would go away and black people would get their civil rights. So why was Thomas Jefferson calling for the abolition almost 20 years before his death? The reason is cynical, or there's a cynical reason for it. The Slave Trade Acts had, had prevented the exportation of slaves from the United States, but it allows exportation of slaves from state to state. And Virginia actually had enough slaves. There was actually probably more slaves in the state of Virginia than the state of Virginia needed. But south of Virginia, there are states like Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, and Louisiana that needed more slaves. They needed more slaves for their cotton agriculture. So Thomas Jefferson and his Virginians were in a place where they could begin to grow 
unbelievably wealthy by exporting their excess slaves within the states, uh, within the United States, with no foreign uh, competitors because foreign slave trade or, uh, 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 you know, uh, anyway, the with with uh, eventually no foreign competitors because that's what Jefferson is fighting for. He's fighting for the end of the international slave trade. So well, he's create he's fighting for a situation where the the southern states, the most southern states, are actually going to Virginia to buy slaves, and it made many Virginians fabulous fabulously wealthy. Well, Congress did not take long to aban to abolish the slave trade because between abolitionists who wanted to end slavery altogether and Virginians who were set to become fabulously wealthy by exporting their own slaves within the United States to more southern states, uh, between those two sides, between northern votes and Virginian votes, uh, the slave trade was abandoned by my research. It seems to be on the very first day the Constitution allows it, January 1st, 1808, the slave trade is officially, the international slave trade is officially abolished. In 1815 through 1816, the British leave, quote unquote, Maroons in Negro Fort, which in 1864 was destroyed by Andrew Jackson. It's my understanding Maroons were black Americans who left or who, who defected to the British to fight for the British in the War of 1812. If I'm factually incorrect about that, please feel free to leave me an email at thewillwrites at gmail.com to correct my factual error. Um, Andrew Jackson destroyed the fort in 1816, and while I couldn't find any figures, I'm going to assume that many of those Maroons died in the attack. Once again, Andrew Jackson is a fascinating figure. I wish I could take some time to talk about some of the good stuff about him, because really, so far, we've just talked about the bad stuff, because he does have a checkered record. In 1820, 36 degrees, 30 minutes north is set as the, oh, this is what I was talking about earlier, is set as the separation between slave and free in the new territories. This is the Missouri Compromise. Uh, the part of the compromise is that Missouri, which lies almost entirely north of that line, would still be a slave state, but all the rest of the territories would be divided at 3630. 1821. Florida is ceded to the United States and instantly goes from an area territory that did not have slavery to becoming a slave state. 1822. Liberia on the African continent is founded by the American Colonization Society. The most generous way to look at this is that northern white people wanted to create an opportunity for black people to escape the persecution and horrors that they faced in North America as slaves. The more cynical view is that the white people of North America didn't want black people here as slaves or as free men. Probably both views are true to a certain degree. 1830, slavery is abolished in Mexican, Texas. So whites decided to call the slaves indentured servants for life, which is just a legal sleight of hand. In 1836, the Republic of Texas re-legalizes slavery. In 1841, the Amistad, 
case comes before the Supreme Court. The slaves aboard the Amistad, uh, a ship, uh, an African uh, or, or a transatlantic slave ship, mutiny, get control of the ship and try to seek uh, refuge in the United States where the ship owners and backed by Southern interests support the right of the uh, the Amistad, the owners of the Amistad, to uh, recapture the slaves and the northern abolitionists, including John Quincy Adams, the former president, supports the rights of the Amistad slaves to, to freedom. This was made into the movie Amistad, which is on my list of movies I cannot believe I've never seen yet. In 1850, now we're getting closer to the Civil War. In 1850, it, uh, the Fugitive Slave Law is signed in a series of compromises designed to try to placate the South and to allow Western states to begin to be added to the United States, even if there weren't, uh, uh, excuse me, Western free states to be added to the Union without, even if there weren't any slave states to come in. Because up to this point, uh, slaves or states were added two at a time to maintain a balance in the federal government. So Missouri and Maine were added at the same time, and I think maybe Louisiana and Indiana, um, Wisconsin and Arkansas, perhaps. Um, the, the states were added pretty much two at a time to try to keep that balance. Well, once you start getting to uh, California, Oregon, and a lot of the western states, you don't really see a lot of opportunities for slave states to come in alongside them. Part of the 1850 compromise was the Kansas-Nebraska which Thomas or, or uh, Stephen Douglas's hope, Stephen Douglas was from Illinois, so he was a free soiler, more or less, uh, but he was also a Democrat, so he supported his party, most of which, or a, a good number of which were Southern Democrats in support of slavery. So Douglas's hope was that the Nebraska territory would be divided into a Northern section called Nebraska and a Southern section called Kansas, and that Kansas naturally would become a slave state, even though it existed north of the 3630 line. Because Kansas can't be much different than Missouri, right? So the idea was slavery would, would thrive here in Kansas. Um, the furor over the Kansas-Nebraska Act, even though Kansas eventually became a free state, uh, the furor over the Kansas-Nebraska Act and what the Southerners and Democrats were trying to do with the Kansas-Nebraska Act is a big reason why the Republican Party came into existence. Part of the series of compromises surrounding the Kansas-Nebraska Act was the creation of the Fugitive Slave Law. This gave Southern slave owners legal protection to pursue their slaves in Northern states where, where slavery was illegal. This created a massive furor in the North, especially the further North you go in places like Boston where the feeling was that Southerners who, who had a lot smaller population and shouldn't have had as much power they had as the, in the federal government uh, now are even usurping the government of Massachusetts and using Massachusetts law enforcement to enforce Southern slave laws. Adding on top of this, in 1857, the worst Supreme Court decision in the history of Supreme Court decisions uh, and I don't care where you fall on, on, on abortion, whether you uh, 
uh, Roe v. Wade or the new, I don't, I don't actually don't know the name of the new decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Uh, wherever you fall on abortion, one or one of those decisions, you you will consider one of the worst Supreme Court decisions ever. Still, Dred Scott is worse. In 1857, the Supreme Court ruled that Dred Scott, a slave who had been taken by his master into Minnesota, Illinois, and maybe Wisconsin, from Missouri, which was a slave state, that uh, since he found himself in those those territories, those free territories, that he had the right to be free because he was taken into those territories, into free, free uh, states. The Supreme Court, led by Southern pro-slavery Chief Justice Roger Toney, ruled that not, not only ruled against Dred Scott that he must remain a slave in the ownership, uh, enslaved in, in to his owner, but it went further in to say that no black people in the United States have standing to come before the Supreme Court for any reason because they're not citizens and never can be. That was the Dred Scott decision. So this further inflamed Northern sentiments and grew abolitionist movements uh, that eventually, by the end of the Civil War, abolitionism would be the talk of the town in, in the North. And finally, in 1859, Kansas, after, and we'll, we're going to spend an entire lecture talking about bleeding Kansas, but after a series of uh, violence and uh, switching political allegiances between competing state governments in Kansas, a free state constitution was approved and in 1861, as uh, Southern senators were seceding, like literally as they're walking out of town, uh, the Senate finally has the numbers necessary to confirm Kansas as a, as a free state. And so pretty much the first decision made by Congress uh, as Southern states were seceding was to add Kansas as a free state. And that is slavery timeline. And that ends our discussion of antebellum America. This has been our third podcast. I'm glad you join us. Join us next time as we discuss the border war, which I, I said we would talk about bleeding Kansas in a future lecture. That's actually going to be the very next podcast. So I hope you join us for that. Uh, we look forward to you downloading and listening. I look forward to your feedback, positive, negative. If you want to throw a digital fruit at me, that would be fine. Uh, you can get my email address, which will be part of the closing tagline of this uh, podcast. Once again, I'm glad that you joined us for this podcast. It has been a blast. have enjoyed this production of the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Rice. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. Music by Coma Media from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. 
We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.